Cusick Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Don't underestimate the other guys, Green. Robert, Mark, and Reed. You have the right to remain silent. Let me shut up. It's 30 minutes away. I'll be there in 10. They see me rolling. Fighting for Justice Radio analyzes civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and covers all legal current events. Each week, Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice features newsmakers, attorneys, media personalities, celebrities, experts, business people, and so much more. Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice. Straight talk, no nonsense. I'm going to make him an offer again with you. Now it's time for Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio. Here are your hosts, Robert, Mark, and Reed. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for listening, as we really do appreciate it. We have another fantastic show for you today. And remember, check out our website at kuziklaw.com. That's K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. And let your friends know that they can listen to the show, too. They can hear it on iTunes, and they can hear it at www.blogtalkradio.com slash kuziklaw. Here on Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Reed Brightman, Robert Ryan, and Mark Leonardo, we analyze hot civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and cover legal current events. Today we will analyze five news stories of the week, actually six, and then we'll wrap up things from there. If we have some time, we'll do Reed's rant. Again, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice, and let's go to the first story of the week. Uh, Robert. There is a story about a new judge being sought in the Jim Carrey wrongful death case. Tell us about this. Well, let's go back a little bit, uh, Reed. You know, we have been covering this story uh, since its inception last fall. Um, these lawsuits arise out of the tragic suicide death of Catriona White, 21-year-old makeup artist, part-time model, and sort of on-again, off-again girlfriend of Jim Carrey. She was found dead by suicide, an overdose of uh, prescription drug medication, in September of 2015 at her L.A. home. Two suicide notes were found, both addressed to Jim Carrey. Um, Approximately a year later, last September in 2016, her estranged husband, Mark Burton, filed a wrongful death lawsuit uh, alleging that the drug she used to kill herself had been provided by Jim Carrey. Um, Jim Carrey and his kind of scorched-earth lawyer, Marty Marty Singer, a well-known Beverly Hills litigator, mounted a counterattack, calling it a shakedown and just the deplorable tactics that Burton was using, which then inspired a first amended complaint, which is essentially like a revised lawsuit, um, alleging even more salacious details about Jim Carrey and Catriona's White's uh, relationship, including the fact that he allegedly gave her uh, three... Uh, sexually transmitted diseases. He tried to shut her out of his life when she complained about that, that he tried to get her to sign a release and wouldn't talk to her. Um, And then the other shoe dropped about a month later when Bridget Sweetman, um, who is the mother of Catriona White, filed her own wrongful death lawsuit, um, basically reiterating the same charges that Mr. Burton had made concerning Mr. Carey's alleged responsibility for her tragic death. Uh, that became embroiled in controversy when uh, Carey and his legal team started uh, contending that uh, Bridget Sweetman was uh, filing the lawsuit only to retaliate against Jim Carey because he had refused to purchase her a home, and that uh, Catriona White, in fact, hadn't spoken to her in many years, and that had effect- effectively shut her out of her life, and that many of her her uh, mental 
mental issues or depression was linked, in fact, to her relationship with the mother and essentially blaming the mom for her suicide. So things have gotten real grisly in a hurry in this lawsuit. And now um, the law, uh, there's a procedure in California where somebody who has filed the lawsuit can challenge the judge assigned to the lawsuit. This is a procedure that's only in California state courts. And I'm not sure if it exists in other jurisdictions. Most places you have to actually show that the judge has some bias or prejudice against you and show facts uh, that would establish that. California has this pretty much unique procedure, as far as I know, where either side can file a one-time challenge to any judge assigned to their case just based on an affidavit of prejudice, which basically says that, hey, I don't like this judge, and I don't think he's going to be fair to me, so I want to get a new judge assigned. The technical term Isn't is that at CCP. the very beginning of the state? Isn't that the very beginning of the case only? And this is already – this is beyond that, right? Well, that's a good point because, yeah, you have to do it within some certain period of time of notice of the assignment. But that's that's just a function of the real convoluted course these lawsuits have taken. Um, w upon filing of the lawsuit, uh, Jim Carrey and his lawyers w did what we called removed it to federal court, um, making the allegation that uh, Mr. Carey was not actually subject to the jurisdiction or not subject to the jurisdiction but could invoke the jurisdiction of the federal courts because he's a Canadian citizen um, and took the court know. to federal court from state court. However, that was that was shot down pretty quickly because although he may be a Canadian citizen, he is a resident of California, and therefore right. that type of jurisdiction is not available to him. This case was originally also filed as part of a regular personal injury type lawsuit that is assigned to a bunch of departments in downtown Los Angeles who handle those cases uh, sort of in a rote fashion. Um, and I think the courts downtown got the idea that, hey, this was going to be pretty convoluted and this was going to be pretty complicated because there's all sorts of motions and charges and countercharges flying back and forth and just recently decided to go ahead and send it out to its own judge to be responsible for uh, the case through trial. Uh, that judge is Deirdre Hill in Department 49, and apparently both parties uh, have now availed themselves of this unique procedure in California whereby somebody can say, hey, you know something, I don't have to give you any reason other than my own belief that I can't get a fair trial from this particular judge, so give me another one. Well, it's pretty automatic. If, if they file within, I think it's a 10-day period, um, 10 or 15 days, something like that, but if they file in a really short period, it's automatically granted. They don't have to show anything. That's exactly uh, right. You just, you just need an affidavit saying that it's on information and belief that you think the judge can't be fair. The interesting thing about this is it's being reported that both sides filed this challenge to this particular judge. Typically, one party or the other will wait to see if they don't like the judge, if the other party may file a challenge so that they can then preserve their own challenge. Because, mm -hmm. in effect, one of these parties wasted their challenge because somebody was going to challenge that judge anyway, and you would have been able to retain your one challenge in case you didn't like the next judge it was assigned to. And that's always exactly. the risk in these situations where you challenge this judge, and then it turns out you get somebody that's even worse. I know there's many litigators who wish they had never filed the challenge to the original judge based on the outcome that happened with the one who was subsequently assigned. Here you had both sides exercise their challenge so that now nobody has a challenge left to whoever this, the next judge is, and so they're just going to be forced to accept him or her. It's interesting. 
you know, they probably both waited until the last minute, and then, you know, it was like a Mexican standoff, I think you call it. And, yeah, uh, may, that, that may be yeah. true, you know, because as you indicated, you only have a certain limited period of time to exercise this challenge. And um, I think what happened was the downtown courts reassigned it to this, what we call an individual calendar judge, which is when you have one judge who's responsible for the entire case. And there had already been a motion pending filed by Mr. Carey's lawyers trying to strike all of these really salacious and incendiary allegations in this amended complaint that was filed on behalf of Mark Burton. Um, the things about the uh, sexually transmitted diseases and these, these, the way he has supposedly abused or mistreated uh, Miss White prior to her death, with, which they are saying really isn't relevant to the wrongful death claims that are issued in the lawsuit. So um, I think the idea is that they're trying to get a judge that they think is going to be more favorable to their motion to strike those allegations. And for whatever reason, uh, Carrie's lawyers thought that Deirdre Hill was not the ideal judge to decide that. As you pointed out, though, Reed, the interesting aspect is that apparently Mark Burden and his lawyers didn't like Deirdre Hill either. And so both shot their one shot here to get rid of her, and now they'll just both have to take whoever the new judge assigned is. Exactly. And, Robert, isn't it true that, it, that once the judge rules or make, does anything in the case, then both sides are dead in the water from disqualifying that judge? Well, that's exactly right. So that's why I think this happened when it did. There is a hearing set for next month, March 27th, on Carrie and his lawyer's motion to strike these allegations in Burton's amended complaint. And so before that motion was ruled upon by Judge Hill, they had to file their challenge because once Judge Hill had made any type of substantive uh, ruling in the case, then the ability to challenge that judge go, uh, automatically uh, is eliminated. The idea is that you can't like check and see what you like about the judge and if she decides against you, then you challenge it and then try to find a new judge. That's not what the procedure is designed uh, to, to affect. What it's designed to do is if, if a litigant or a lawyer just has kind of a bad feeling about this particular judge, he can strike him and get a new judge and take his chances with them. But it has to happen before the existing judge has done anything substantive on the case. Right. You know, Robert, let me ask you, you know, this, this guy, uh, on behalf of his client, um, He's making some pretty outrageous allegations against Jim Carrey, and if it turns out that they're not true and that they're made up and that she didn't get you know, sexually transmitted diseases from Jim Carrey, I don't know how he's going to prove that one way or the other, proving a negative, but let's say he was able to do that. Is there any opportunity for Jim Carrey to, to you know, throw this back at them with a defamation suit? I mean, they, they're saying horrible things about him. Well, they are saying horrible things about him, and, and in a way, it sort of signifies a fundamental weakness in these lawsuits that are filed both on behalf of the estranged husband, Mr. Burton, and also the mother, uh, uh, Bridget Sweetman. Um, you know, a, a wrongful death case based on these allegations is going to be very difficult. I mean, it's undisputed that this poor young woman committed suicide. She left two notes, both addressed to Mr. Carey, um, sort of laid out the reasons why, you know, she was she was taking this terrible, making this terrible decision. Um, and it's uncontroverted that, you know, she she was suffering from depression. She was she was angry or, you know, saddened by the breakup with Mr. Carey and for whatever reason, tragically decided to take her own life. And to try to impose Mr. Uh, liability for a decision like that on Mr. Carey, first they have the allegation that it was his pills. Well, they fought back against that saying, well, if it was our pills or if it was Mr. Carey's pills, she took 
those surreptitiously. He would never give her those pills. And there is some statutory violation they have that perhaps Mr. Carey had gotten the pills by using an assumed name, which is technically illegal in California. But to translate that into somehow holding Mr. Carey responsible for this young lady's death when it was so obviously at her own hand is a real steep climb for them from a legal from a legal standard. And so what it seems it to have happened is that both of these plaintiffs have sort of sort of loaded up these lawsuits with these incendiary allegations that really have very little to do with whether Mr. Carey might ultimately be held legally responsible for this young woman's death. You know, the thing about the STTs, that was years ago, you know, and this thing about he cut her off and that he wanted her to sign a release and that only his assistants would talk to her and, and then the counter charges that Mark Burton was, you know, in a sham marriage with her because she did not have a green card and that they, she did it so that she could work uh, in, in California and uh, the allegations concerning her relationship with her mother. This whole thing is steamrolled into this like this like noxious cloud of, of like really salacious allegations in a way which is serving to obscure the fact that the fundamental issue at in dispute in the lawsuit is going to be very hard for these for these plaintiffs uh, to meet. It's going to be a, it's a really hard standard. But Right. Because these allegations are being made in, law, in lawsuits, in California, you have something called the litigation privilege. And the litigation privilege provides that you cannot be sued for statements or charges that are made in the context of pending litigation. So there's no defamation, there's no slander, there's nothing like that that could be asserted in the event that these lawsuits ultimately fail, which most legal observers think probably is going to be the case. There's the sole remedy that Mr. Carey would have in the event he ultimately prevails in these lawsuits is for malicious prosecution. That's the legal remedy for somebody who feels that they have been unfairly charged in the context of a lawsuit. And that's the only cause of action that survives the litigation privilege in California. Um, mm. Now, of course, that's a very high standard to meet as well. So in the event that Mr. Carey, whether these lawsuits are ultimately defeated or settled or whatever, um, for Mr. Carey to then come back and say, oh, no, there was no basis, in fact, for these for these claims and that these claims were made with knowledge of their falsity and that they were done with a specific intent to harm Mr. Carey's reputation and character. Again, now the, now the impossible or the really improbable legal standard would flip to Mr. Carey, and so most people don't really pursue those types of claims once they've successfully defended lawsuits of this type. Yeah, it's one of the weaknesses we have. It's very unfortunate, but anybody can sue anybody else for pretty much anything. And, you know, it's it's like uh, legal theft. You know, the, Jim Carrey is going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars dealing with this. And if I were Jim Carrey, I wouldn't settle under any circumstances, not for one dollar, because otherwise, I mean, it'll look like he was guilty of this stuff. It's almost like an admission, even if, if it's a confidential settlement. Well, so, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing because I think this really shows you sometimes the targets that celebrities can be. Obviously, this generated mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of publicity, all of it really bad for Mr. Carey. But the thing that you have to realize is that Mr. Carey is a fabulously wealthy man. I mean, his, his long career in movies and in the entertainment industry has garnered him a net worth of hundreds of millions of dollars. And he's a big, ripe, fat target 
for anybody mm-hmm. who can come up with even a, a, a semi-semblance of a theory, no matter how harebrained, that you know he can owe them mm-hmm. some money in a civil lawsuit. And, and I think that's kind of a lot of what's going on here because it seems hard for me to imagine that Mr. Burton or Miss Sweetman, the mother, would want to see them, the memory of their daughter kind of trashed in this way that the filing of, of these lawsuits has incited. I mean, she hasn't come out very, very, uh, you know, very nice in these in these portrayals, right. whether by Mr. Carey or whether by what's been presented in the lawsuits. Um, you know, they even went so far as to release to the press her suicide notes. And, you know, which just seems to me to be just such a, such a, I don't know, uh, such a deplorable thing, you know. I mean, it's the tragedy of these circumstances, and then to like release the suicide notes in the hope that you can get more dirt thrown on your opponent in this lawsuit. It's just, it's, it seems noxious on both sides. And you, yep. you just wonder whether Mr. Burton and Miss Sweetman really, you know, are looking to vindicate this young girl's memory because what has happened up until now seems to be doing anything but. Yeah. Yes. Well, it is a a continuing saga. We will. We'll move on to the next story. Uh, we'll go back to Mark Leonardo's story. Uh, he is now with us uh, about the San Diego student forced to urinate in a bucket. Uh, Mark, tell us about this. Right. Uh, read this young lady. She won $1.25 million in what's called general damages, which is more or less for pain and suffering and inconvenience. And she also got $41,000 for her past and for future medical expenses that she incurred as a result of this incident. And this incident took, back, took place back in uh, February 2012 um, at a high school in San Diego. And um, the school district, she initially had to file what's called a tort claim, and the school district denied that. And, it, and when she started this whole process, she was only asking for $25,000. Um, but, you know, when she got to court, the jury, you know, voted in her favor. And... Um, you know, she said that the, this whole incident fueled gossip and lewd texts, and she became depressed, and she even tried to commit suicide at one point. And, you know, the, the whole issue itself of having, to, you know, she was told to go sit, uh, go pee in the closet because the, the teacher wouldn't let her go to the bathroom. And the teacher supposedly thought that there was some uh, really strict policy by the school district that you couldn't let students use the restroom during these particular classes, and she was in a a short uh, freshman advisory class that only lasted 25 minutes. So the idea of going to, to the restroom uh, during that 25-minute period she thought was you know, not proper, but somehow she said it was okay to go in the closet and pee in the bucket. Now that kind of makes no sense. Um, so in, in, uh, the teacher, her name is uh, Ms. Wolf, she allegedly told this to this young lady in the, in the presence of several male classmates and adding that, you know, the girl could not leave the classroom regardless of the urgency of the situation. And so as a consequence, you know, like I said, she became the target of bullying and, you know, ridicule, and it caused her a lot of emotional distress. And, uh, $1.25 million worth, though? I mean, that seems like such a ridiculously outrageous sum of money. I guess, I guess it got to the point where she had to change schools twice, and she almost committed suicide, and she's been seeing a you know, uh, mental health therapist. And so the jury believed that she was you know, truly emotionally damaged by this whole thing. You know, it, it probably, you know, the, the idea of, like, look, if it happened to you or I, someone said go pee in a bucket in the closet, we'd probably laugh it off and go do it. 
but it's all the aftermath. I would have listened happened. to the. I would have said to the teacher, "I'm going to the bathroom. See ya." And I would have just walked <laughs> out. But you know, no, but I, I understand how I mean, no student this case, this, case is the, this case is all about the aftermath, the bullying and the, and the harassment and the joking and and all the things yeah. she went through. That's why the jury found the way they did. And, uh, well, I guess with that could, kind of money, nobody's ever going to be able to say she doesn't have a pot to. Well, you know. What <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> Robert, that's funny. Uh, yeah, that is. But a lot I mean, of money. really, let's talk I mean, about the amount of money. I mean, yeah. now the school district—that's that's over a million dollars that they're going to have to pay this one individual for what seems to be kind of a transitory, you know, disturbing event. I guess, you know, I mean, like Reed says, I mean, I suppose if it happened to a male, they'd probably make a joke about it and sort of like become famous for it, but. You know, uh, females maybe perhaps could take these things in a more sensitive manner or a more serious manner. But, you know, now we got like $1.25 million that the school district can't be using to, you know, buy books for the kids or buses to take them to class or whatever else they spend their money on. It's, it just seems like, wow, such a large amount of, of money for, for something like this. It, it does. It's a lot it of does. money. And like I said. She know, had she, a good lawyer. <laughs> yeah, she had a good lawyer. Like I said, when she initially True. started, she was only asking for uh, $25,000, and, and uh, she had to go through the tort claim process, which I'm not sure – I would imagine most people don't know what that is. Whenever you uh, have a governmental entity, um, you have to file this governmental tort claim, which is a form you have to fill out, or it, can, it doesn't have to be a form, but it has to meet certain criteria to be submitted to that entity. And then um, the, the government has the option of – of honoring that claim and paying it or some portion of it. Um, and if they don't, um, then you can file your lawsuit. You can't, you can't file your lawsuit until you do this tort claim. And one of the little tricks for the, for the government is you have to file that tort claim within six months. And it's a real trap for a lot of people that aren't you know, knowledgeable about this process. So, so, so Mark, claim, what, do you, what do you have to tell our listeners if they're involved in an accident or they're harmed as a result of conduct that might be the responsibility of a governmental entity concerning, you know, investigating the possibility of, of getting a lawyer and filing a claim as quickly as possible? Well, that's just it, getting a lawyer and finding out as quickly as possible, because that six months runs pretty fast. And uh, I'm sure you've had cases in your career, I know I've had them in mine, where I've been right up against that, where people walk in, you know, like, the six months is the next day, and you have to scramble to get that done and filed, you know, on time. And sometimes, if you're late, you can make a late claim, but those are rarely ever granted. And, uh, and even the tort claims, I, in, I, I think you and I have discussed this in the past. But in my entire 30-plus year career as a lawyer, I have never once seen a tort claim honored by a governmental entity. So I've always had right. to sue. But no, I, it's, I just a tra- it's just a trap door to hope you fall through by not filing it in time. <laughs> it really I don't. Think, I, I've never heard of them actually paying one either, to tell you the truth. But and then and then once you get through that, then you you know you have to deal with the governmental immunities. We've talked about that in past shows. So it, it's an uphill yep. battle. But you know this this young lady, she's she got through both of those. She got through the tort claim. She got through the jury trial. And the other point I wanted to no, it took make five here, years though. That's what I was just going to say. This happened in 2012. It took her almost five years to get to trial, which, you know, I can tell you that here at Kuzik Law, the number one question I get asked from clients, I'm sure you do too, Robert, is how long is this going to take for my claim? <laughs> they ask us all the time. It's, you know, it, we have to tell them we have no idea. Some cases resolve within a few weeks to a month. Some cases take years. Um, you know, the government, the statutes have a, a five-year 
limitation that once you file a lawsuit, trial has to commence within five years, unless the parties waive that and there's some exceptions for tolling if you file an appeal or something. But otherwise, the trial must start within five years. And if you wait to the last possible day on a statute of limitations, typically in personal injury cases, it's two years. So it could take seven years from the date of the incident to get to trial. Uh, the longest I've ever had was eight years. We did that because we had waivers involved. So that's an extreme. But, uh, you know, litigation can take well, a really long time. Last, last, month, we, we, last month we settled a million-dollar case that uh, was about 45 days. We had the case for about six weeks. We settled it for a million bucks. So it really can go the gamut. But the moral of that story is definitely if you're involved in an accident, you want to talk to a lawyer right away, and uh, that's that's also advisable because if you don't get medical treatment and you you just sit around and hope that the pain is going to go away, uh, a lot of times that really hurts the case because the insurance companies then take the position that, well, if you were able to wait a month before you started seeing doctors, uh, you must not have been hurt that bad and in the accident, and maybe you could, maybe there was some intervening accident that, that really caused the injuries. It makes it a lot more difficult. But let's move on yeah, to the next story. Um, we're, you're listening to Kuzik Laws Fighting for Justice Radio, and you can hear this podcast on our website or on iTunes. On our website, just go to kuziklaw.com, K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com, or on iTunes, uh, you can go to www.blogtalkradio.com slash kuziklaw. Uh, moving on to the next story, it's another story from Mark Leonardo, and this is about a man with prior DUIs driving under the influence gets into an accident and that causes the death of a father and his unborn baby in a car crash in California. What happened, Mark? Yeah, this is another one of those sad stories that we seem to specialize in. Uh, a guy by the name of Alexander Perez, who was 56 years old, um, he supposedly ran through a stop sign out here in Victorville, California, and he broadsided into the driver's side door of their Honda Accord. And uh, the guy that was driving was a guy by the name of Angel Barranco, and he had his seven-month pregnant wife and his mother-in-law in the front in the passenger seat, and then his mother-in-law was in the back seat. Um, they ended up all ended up in the hospital. The driver, Mr. Barranco, he died, and uh, his wife, um, she lost her baby, and they had they have two other children who now have no father, and. Um, and the, the mother and the mother-in-law, they were seriously injured. So, and, and this guy supposedly, not supposedly, the, the police have confirmed he had two prior DUIs. And uh, the mother-in-law just doesn't understand how this guy was even back on the road after having two DUIs, and now he has a third one, and he's been charged with uh, nuclear manslaughter while intoxicated. That's good. Well, I understand that in California, um, drunk drivers can sometimes be charged with uh, second-degree murder. Uh, as a result of becoming so intoxicated, they cause the death of another person while driving drunk. Um, but this guy is only being charged with vehicular homicide? Yeah, um, with, while intoxicated and driving under influence, causing great bodily injury. So I, I suppose that has now, some type of enhancement. Could he be charged with some sort of crime arising from the death of the, uh, of the woman's fetus, the unborn child? Absolutely. Yeah, we, we have a case, I'm handling a case right now, I think you know about that, uh, where we had a client who uh, was injured in a car accident. The baby didn't die, but she, the baby was, suffered a brain injury from, uh, from the seatbelt or hitting the steering wheel. 
so yeah, and you know, if if the baby uh, is killed, there's a claim for that as well. Can, can yeah. he suffer criminal liability for that? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Um, hmm. I don't know if you do, but I think I, I, don't know I think, I think there is criminal liability for that. I think that under the law, um, if a fetus is a person it, it, for purposes it, of the vehicular homicide yeah. statutes. For purposes of any homicide statute, yeah. Hmm. It's interesting because the, the woman, although in the seven months she's in the last trimester, I'm not sure what the rule is on abortion. I don't know if she's permitted to have an abortion without uh, a demonstrated threat to her life. But here in California, I'm just not sure about it. But um, interestingly, if it was a, you know, a five-month-old fetus, the woman would have the right to terminate that pregnancy under current law. But yet, if a robber came up and you know stabbed her or something, and she survived, but the baby died, the robber could definitely be charged with uh, murder. So, it's an interesting contradiction in different aspects of the law. And I, Meaning I that somebody could... could face criminal liability for something that the the mother could could do herself. Right. As far as termination yeah, of the pregnancy, I, I'm totally okay with that, and. Uh, you know, if, if somebody does something that results in death, uh, they shouldn't benefit from the uh, circumstance that the baby just hadn't been born. I mean, that baby, seven, month, seven months pregnant, that baby was viable. I mean, if she would have had Absolutely. a – if she would have gone yeah. into labor uh, and the baby was born, the baby would very likely survive. So my, my twins were both seven-month babies, and, you know, they're perfectly healthy now. So – you know, imagine the devastation to that family, and that guy deserves to go in jail for a very long time. And I'm very disappointed in, in, in our own judicial system that these drivers, constantly, these drunk drivers, they get back on the road. They don't listen to orders that their license or licenses are suspended, um, and they get – even if this guy gets convicted of – involuntary manslaughter. He's not going to get a lot of time. He's not going to actually serve a lot of time in our in our overcrowded state. So it's very disappointing. Yeah, and on, and on the civil side, what happens is if, if uh, they get a lawyer and they pursue this and they get a judgment against this guy, quite often people think, well, I'll just file bankruptcy and discharge that big judgment. But the bankruptcy has a statute that actually says – if you injure or kill someone while you're drunk, drunk driving, um, that that debt is not dischargeable. So even if this guy gets out, there'll be a judgment following him around probably for the rest of his life. What about insurance? Based on your description so far with his uh, three DUIs, he doesn't sound like the kind of person who's going to be too concerned about his credit rating. <laughs> right. Yeah, what about uh, insurance, Mark? Does Does insurance cover... Does, does, will his insurance cover the injuries to these people, even though he was driving drunk? Yes, or will they be able to get out of it? No, the insurance will cover that. But if there was a punitive damage award, um, because you can get punitive damages when someone's driving drunk, uh, if you can meet all the threshold tests, but the insurance company will not cover punitive damages because as a matter of law, and, they can't and, cover And, and let me throw a cautionary note in there, which is there. Historically in California, there have been some policy forms that carriers have issued which preclude any any uh, liability under their policies in the event that uh, an accident is caused by a drunk driver. And I, I have a client you, that that very thing that happened has, to. Given that he has two prior DUIs, he probably didn't even have insurance because what insurance company in their right mind would, would insure this guy? Mm -hmm. That's yeah, that's, yeah. that's a possibility. 
All right, let's move on to our next story. Uh, this is very interesting. Robert Ryan has uh, five famous celebrity wrongful death suits, uh, including our favorite O.J. Simpson. That's probably the most infamous one. Uh, Robert, tell us about these. Well, let's think about uh, you know what this concept is here of the wrongful death lawsuits. And many people are a little confused about the difference between what we call civil liability in the civil court system of California or any other state and criminal liability. And O.J. Simpson is a perfect example. O.J. Simpson was charged criminally with the murder of Nicole Brown, um, his uh, his estranged wife, and her and th- th- that waiter, who's unfortunately for some reason his name is escaping me right now. Um, uh, Ron Goldman, does that sound right? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he was he was acquitted, of course, because the jury came back and, and they made a finding of not guilty. And under that circumstance, that was a, a claim or a charge that was brought by the state of California. That was how it was entitled uh, um, under the criminal statutes that forbid, you know, uh, certain acts that result in the death of another person when you act intentionally, which is basically the crime of second degree murder. Um, that is a much higher standard. It requires uh, proof beyond the reasonable doubt. And, of course, even though it was very controversial at the time and there were many opinions concerning O.J. Simpson's guilt or not, um, the jury came back and felt that the prosecution hadn't proved their case beyond the reasonable doubt. And O.J. Simpson you know, did not have to face criminal liability, which would have been imprisonment in a state prison for certain terms, a minimum of 15 years, had he been convicted, uh, for that death. However, the families of Nicole Brown uh, Simpson and uh, Mr. Goldman filed what's called a wrongful death lawsuit. And now, this is entirely different. This is, it can be based on either negligent conduct, reckless conduct, or intentional conduct that results in the death of a person and can be filed by certain people who are affected by that death, usually the relatives of, the, of the, uh, just what, who we call the decedent, the person who has died, um, or that person's estate. And this is a civil standard. And the civil standard uh, is less than the criminal standard. All you have to do is prove it uh, by what we call a preponderance of the evidence that the defendant in the civil lawsuit um, you know, caused the death of, of the person that these people are suing on behalf of or, be, or based on. Um, and then, of course, the remedy is only what you can get in a civil lawsuit, which is primarily monetary damages. And so in this particular situation, we had these wrongful death lawsuits against O.J. Simpson, where although he was acquitted uh, of the criminal charges, he was he was found he was found liable in the civil lawsuit in order to pay I think in excess of 32 million dollars. Well, I don't believe that the Goldmans or the estate of uh, Nicole Brown Simpson or her relatives uh, really received very much money um, because Mr. Simpson had been quite adroit at shielding his assets uh, from any civil liability as a result of that judgment and although they're continuing to press forward on trying to uh, try to collect that judgment, my understanding is that huge chunks of it remain uncollected. Um, You know, wrongful death lawsuits have a very interesting history in this country. It's only a very recent development. You know, most of American uh, jurisprudence is based on the English common law system, which was basically judges coming up with decisions because they didn't really have legislatures back in those days. And when we imported that system to the United States, there was no wrongful death cause of action, which created quite a bit of an anomaly because although you could be responsible for harming somebody, right, but if they died, you had no liability. 
So in a way, it almost created wow. this perverse incentive to actually, if you were going to hurt somebody, hurt, hurt them bad enough to kill them because then you wouldn't have to pay them damages. So this is somewhat anomalous in the law, and so therefore most states, I'm, I'm pretty sure all 50 states, have wrongful death statutes that now provide for a law that allows for a civil lawsuit against somebody who was accused of causing uh, the death of somebody, and that, that can be caused in various ways. O.J. Simpson is an example of a wrongful death lawsuit prevailing on the theory that the conduct was intentional, that he killed this woman and she, he killed this man and that he was found liable for the damages resulting from his intentional conduct in doing so. We also have a, um, a wrongful death lawsuit that was filed against the 90s pop singer Brandy, um, an actress and a, and a singer. Uh, she rear-ended a woman driving a Land Rover in December of 2006, and she uh, paid $300,000 each to the sons of the woman who was killed as a result of that accident. There's an example of a wrongful death lawsuit prevailing based on a theory of negligence, very common, an automobile accident where somebody is alleged to not have followed due care in the operation of the automobile, an accident results and somebody dies, and so she had to pay civil damages for that. Another one that's interesting is the situation involving Nancy Grace. People may know her from the, she's a former prosecutor, yeah. and she's kind of a controversial TV show host. She's kind of like, kind of like aggressive and, and kind of like raw-edged. And uh, she was interviewing uh, Melinda Duckett, um, whose two-year-old son had gone missing. And she was grilling her about the son's disappearance and just like completely tore into this woman, basically goaded her into admitting on national television that she was somehow responsible for her son's disappearance. And Melinda Duckett ended up committing suicide in the ensuing uproar. And uh, so the allegation was made that Nancy Grace's conduct was reckless. And so, and she was actually found liable for, uh, actually, she wasn't found liable. I believe the no, case she wasn't was settled. Yeah, right. she settled, but you know, she settled under circumstances that indicated they thought that she was going to be going to be found liable because she did pay an undisclosed sum to to the family of Melinda Duckett and also set up a two hundred thousand dollar trust dedicated to finding finding the boy. Um, so there was an example of a wrongful death lawsuit prevailing under a reckless conduct theory. Um, John Ritter's widow, John Ritter, who was uh, before a we move star. on to that one. Before before we okay. do move on to John Ritter, I want to. I'm not so sure about that. A lot of times, you know, production companies like that and celebrities, they will settle a case just to get rid of it. Just like Jim Carrey, you know, may have considered settling, you know, his case just to avoid all of the public scrutiny and the, the whole uproar. And I I just don't see how um, uh, Grace could have been really held liable under the law for asking questions. It's a tough interview. That's what happens. And it's all free speech. It's all tied into free speech. This is newsworthy. And uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't immediately jump to the conclusion that they settled because they thought they might lose. I think it might have been that they just wanted to get out of it. Well, you know, I, that's, that's a good point. I mean, many times civil defendants settle for reasons, you know, unrelated to whether or not they're, they're actually liable for the underlying conduct that they're being accused of. There's the, the, what you say, there's the cost of defending the lawsuit. There's the risk of the right. possibility that a jury, you know, no matter what the legal standard may dislike the conduct and be looking to, you know, punish, punish the defendant for something that, um, although may be legally defensible, may be socially unacceptable or reprehensible. And if anybody's ever watched the Nancy Grace show, yeah, like you say, it's free speech. We have freedom of the press. We have freedom of, of broadcast in this country. Um, but if you watch the interview, you could. There's, there's, I think there was 
the lawyers probably made a, a pretty reasoned determination that a jury watching that interview was going to feel a lot of sympathy for that young woman who ultimately killed herself and were probably you know, a little wary of, of what the jury may do, even though they might have felt that they were on solid legal ground as far as their defenses go. You know, we do have the jury system in this country, and many times juries, you know, they, we have this concept called jury nullification, where, you know, right. sometimes juries, they, they take it upon themselves to ignore the instructions of the laws that, that, that they have been given by the judge, and they make a finding uh, in favor of a particular plaintiff, or sometimes it works the other way in favor of a particular defendant, and everybody scratches their head afterwards as to how they could do that. And, of course, there's, you know, there's checks and balances built into the system where the, the judges or the appeals court can, can, can correct those types of things. But, you know, a lot of times, you know, what a jury, a jury is going to do can be something that you might feel you have a good legal defense, but, you know, maybe there's, there's a moral issue involved. Or, though, as you indicated, Reed, sometimes, you know, the publicity can be bad, too, although I can't imagine that Nancy Grace, <laughs> given the tenor of her show and her notoriety, would have thought that this is the type of publicity that would have been bad for her. But I don't know. But I, I was going to say about John Ritter's widow, uh, John Ritter, mm-hmm. you know, the star of Three's Company, he died very suddenly of a, of a heart, uh, aortic dissection, which is kind of like a heart a heart condition. And he had been under the care of cardiologists. His, or, his aorta his, blew up. That's what yeah, that means. And his, That's yeah, the main. And his, uh, yeah. It's just a sudden, it's just a sudden ba-boom, you know? Um, yeah. And, uh but he had been under the care of doctors, and uh, he had been feeling poorly, and I think had visited some doctors before he actually had his fatal fatal heart attack. And uh, she had sued under a theory of what we call medical ne- negligence, which is a negligence theory against the medical professional, saying that his care of the particular patient did not meet the standard of care in the community for how he should have acted. Uh, that case actually went to trial, and uh, and she lost. Uh, the doctors got a defense what we call a defense verdict. Um, so that was a situation where a wrongful death lawsuit was filed based on a theory of medical negligence. And then who could forget the case of Robert Blake? Um, My tragic, old uh, his, yeah, his second, his second wife who was shot to death outside that restaurant in Encino um, mm-hmm. at a restaurant that he favored. Uh, the gun, I think, was found in the trash bin, and uh, he was actually criminally charged with second-degree murder and, you know, up you know, to many observers' surprise, uh, he was acquitted by a jury in that case. Her name was Bonnie Lee Bakley. Um, you know, the de- the defense in that criminal trial had done a pretty good job of dragging in a lot of dirt about Bonnie Lee Bakley. She was presented in a very unflattering uh a portrayal was made to the jury in that case about her previous emotional instability, drug abuse, things of this nature. Um, Just a very unflattering picture was painted, and many people thought that that was the reason that Robert Blake was acquitted of her murder in uh, 2006. However, her children filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Mr. Blake, much like the O.J. Simpson lawsuit, based on what they allege was his intentional conduct in causing the death of her, alleging that even if he wasn't the one who pulled the trigger, he was the one who had arranged it or ordered somebody you know, to do it. And he suffered a judgment of $30 million in that case that he was ordered to pay to the, to the children of Bonnie Lee Blakely, another case of a wrongful death lawsuit based on intentional conduct. Right, but I hey, think Robert, he was broke too. <laughs> hey, Robert, going, going back to the John Ritter case, I see that when the the wife sued, she was suing the doctors for sixty seven million dollars. I'm a little bit baffled by that, given the med mal caps. How would she have been able to to do that successfully? Loss of earnings. 
Well, yeah, because the MedMal cap is $250,000 in California, but that's only on what we call general damages, which, you has, as you know, are for, for like things like pain and suffering, or in this particular case, because Mr. Ritter was dead, for his wife's loss of his love, care, companionship, spousal affection, these types of things that the law categorizes, categorizes as general damages. But in a, in a negligent suit, and in a medical negligence suit, like any other, there's also what we call special damages, which were for out-of-pocket losses. And those could be the most significant one, I would imagine, in Mr. Ritter's case, would have been his future loss of earnings. That as a result right. of his death, he was deprived of the ability to generate you know, the, the, the considerable sums that I'm sure he was making in his entertainment business and in, in his employment in the entertainment business. And you know, it's interesting because when I saw that $67 million, you cannot put a specific dollar amount in a lawsuit for medical negligence in California, or indeed in any law, any negligence lawsuit. Um, but that figure came from what her lawyers asked the jury to award in the trial of the matter, um, because they had had an economist and they had had various uh, specialists and experts come in and testify that this is what Mr. Ritter would have earned in the balance of his entertainment career had he not died. Um, so that was an element of their recoverable damages that would have been in addition to the cap on general damages that she would have been entitled to as his uh, spouse, which would have been limited to $250,000. But of course, the jury did not find that there was any negligence on the part of the doctors, so she wound up with nothing. Right. All right, All right let's move on to the next story. You're Again, we're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio, and you can visit us at kuziklaw.com, K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. We're going to move on to Mark Leonardo's story about Monsanto losing a labeling battle in California. I'm really interested in this, Mark. Tell me about it. Well, if, if you know anything about Monsanto, they're the, one of the largest agricultural companies in the world, um, and they have they came up with a chemical herbicide. Um, I think we all know Roundup, and in Roundup is this chemical called glyphosate. And so, a couple of years ago, back in 2015, uh, the International Agency for Research on Cancer has determined that the glyphosate is a chemical that is a carcinogen for human. And it carcinogen means connection. causing cancer? Yes. And it, it may lead to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, and so and also that the glyphosate can also change the DNA and cause chromosomal damage in human cells. So it's a pretty bad chemical. And so here in California, we had uh, Proposition 65. I'm not sure when that came out, but it, Prop 65 makes it mandatory um, to list certain chemicals on various products. And so there was a lawsuit, um, and there's a tentative ruling from a judge saying that uh, Monsanto now has to post on its products that have glyphosate that it is um, a chemical known to cause cancer. And so, as you might imagine, Monsanto is not too thrilled about that, and they're fighting it tooth and nail uh, because they just don't want to have to put that on any, any of their products. Well, and, where was the uh, California saw, Environmental Protection Agency in this? Why did it require a lawsuit by somebody to, to compel Monsanto to do this? Why didn't they do this on their own? Well, it's it actually Prop 65 makes it mandatory for this little uh, division of this California Environmental Protection Agency. It's called the California Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment. There's a mouthful. Anyway, 
that division is required to uh, make sure that these chemicals are posted on products that are, that are known to cause cancer. And so that's, what the, that's how this came about. But someone, you know, made a lawsuit to make sure that they did this, and uh, that, that's why this became uh, in front of the judge, and the judge is tentatively, it's not a final decision yet, um, that it will have to be put on products. Um, so this glyphosate was first registered, you know, for use in the United States back in 1974 by Monsanto, and uh, it's mostly used by them as, a, as an herbicide for um, agriculture and forestry on lawns and gardens and to kill weeds. Um, but, you know, it's, it's spread to other things. And so there was a study that came out a couple of months ago that said that they're finding glyphosate in a bunch of, of foods that we eat. And there was a right. study done by a, um, a nonprofit organization, so theoretically it's, you know, it's not – it's not biased by any particular organization. Um, and they, they came out with 29 foods that we commonly see in a grocery store. And, for example, Cheerios was, one, I think, one of the highest um, products to have uh, glyphosate in it. And uh, there was Kashi soft-baked oatmeal, dark chocolate cookies, Ritz crackers, uh, Kellogg Special K, Triscuit crackers, just to name a few the things that are in our grocery stores that have this glyphosate, which and who is and who is the entity that came to the determination that in fact it is a, carcin, a carcinogen? It was the um, International Agency for Research on Cancer. It's a branch. Are they of the World reputable Health. and are they legitimate? And if they say it's cancer causing, everybody can say yes, it's cancer causing. Well, it's a it's a branch of the World Health Organization. It's called IARC. You may have heard seen an acronym somewhere. Um, but they're not, they're from France. It's an organization in France. And they've done the studies, and this is what they've come up with. That, you Do know, they realize they just ruined Cheerios for me? I love Cheerios. <laughs> I, oh, I, I thought, and I read that a few months ago. I made sure my kids don't eat Cheerios anymore because that's pretty, pretty scary. <laughs> this, this chemical is really frightening. You know, oh, and, and Monsanto's, Monsanto's the leading company for genetically modified foods. They, yeah, they, I was just going to say, Cheerios is all GMO. You know. Yeah, it is all GMO, and um, so that, there's about sixty law, there's about sixty lawsuits out there by against Monsanto right now for various people getting this non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and um, so they're you know Monsanto is up against it right now. I wonder how they can prove that their particular non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was caused by Roundup as opposed to whatever else causes non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Well, they, do know, it, they, use, we, they do it in laboratory mice, I think. Right, I don't know. For this particular I, person, I, right? Yeah, I believe that that glyphosate probably causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I'm going to give that cancer research entity the benefit of the doubt. But even if that's true, how, you know, for example, my wife's father has been battling non-Hodgkin's lymphoma for literally 22 years, and he's beaten it time and time again. It keeps coming back. And he's beaten the odds incredibly. You know, he's got a every time it comes back, he's got a five percent chance of survival. He's beaten it four times, four recurrences. Um, and you know, we wonder about it because it's it seems like a it, it's not acting like the normal type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And uh, you know, we wonder what caused this. And I wonder, you know, for him, he's gone through millions of dollars worth of medical expenses and pain and suffering. Uh, it'd be great to for him to be able to, 
you know, go after a big company like Monsanto and get compensation and reimbursed. But how the heck would he prove that it was Roundup? I mean, yeah, he probably used Roundup once or twice in his life. He didn't work in a Roundup company factory or something. So well, how would you prove time, that? Every time you have a products liability case, read, you have this term that you know we know is causation. Can you connect the exposure to the product to the harm that you receive, in this case, cancer? And you know nobody can ever say with 100% certainty. So what happens is both sides hire all these experts. The experts come in and they say, you know, the plaintiff's expert's going to say more likely than not, Robert was just talking about preponderance of the evidence, which is more likely than not, just a tad over 50%, um, that this person's cancer was caused from exposure to this product. You know, of course, the defense experts will come in and say, of course not. There's always other possible ways this person got, you know, cancer. It could be from a million different reasons, and they can't prove it. So, you know, a judge or a jury gets to decide whether the plaintiff meets his or her burden. The other thing I wanted to point out, too, is that Monsanto, it's very difficult to sue Monsanto. And the reason is the people that were behind Monsanto were a lot of, like, famous senators and things like that. They, they were part of that, org- that company when it, when it, in its infancy. And at some point, they passed what's called the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. And in that act, it basically prohibits lawsuits against companies like Monsanto for, that create these chemicals. And so there's like an immunity they have. But um, I have a friend of mine that's, uh, that prosecutes these types of lawsuits, um, does asbestos litigation and does farming chemical litigation. And he says there's some court rulings now that are our allowing lawsuits to proceed against Monsanto for from cancer, from exposure to glyphosate. I'm not sure how they're getting around that statute, but, you know, it, I think we'll see more and more of that in the future. But it's kind of amazing that Monsanto has had this protection, which has allowed them to become this behemoth of a corporation around the whole world with the food and the GMO products they make and sell and probably causing a lot of harm to our to the people around the world. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely – it's so controversial and – I know that we're very concerned in my house about genetically modified organisms and, you know, nobody knows what that's really doing. And there's a lot of controversy surrounding that. And, you know, things like glyphosate, I mean, that that's just hands down. It's, it's dangerous and we don't want that in our food. We don't want that in our environment. Um, and, you know, a lot of people hypothesize that uh, that has had an impact on our bee population even. So it's just, it's really dangerous, and Monsanto is, of course, focused on the almighty dollar, and right. they don't care. So you know, it's what, just a scary situation. What Monsanto has done, is they would, they would have their GMO seeds at, let's call it Farm A, and if the farmer, Farmer B, next to that Farm A, doesn't want to use those GMO products, well, if some of those seeds from the wind blow onto Farmer B's property, Monsanto will come in and sue Farmer B to shut them down and make them not sell any of those crops because they'll claim it's proprietary to them and that guy's trying to sell their GMO products when he wasn't trying to do so in the first place. And so they were putting farmer, many, many, many farmers out of business. By, Why wouldn't by that farmer sue the neighbor 
and say, you know, your seed blew, you know, this is evidence that your seed blew onto my property. That's a trespass, and you have to indemnify me for my costs and, and loss of profits, you know, because of Monsanto's lawsuit. That's what I would do. Well, yeah, when you have farmer with who, who lives on a farmer income and you have Monsanto with billions and billions of dollars who can hire as many lawyers as they want, who do you think is going to win that, that case? Yeah, well, but when Monsanto's customers are getting sued, you know, Monsanto would have to kind of – I think Monsanto would have to back down on that policy because if everybody everybody who's buying Monsanto seeds has, has to worry that they're going to get sued by their neighbors, then maybe they'll say, all right, I won't buy Monsanto seeds. Um, all right, let's let's move on to the last story. Uh, again, you're listening to Kuzel Claws Fighting for Justice, and you can – See our website, get more information about Kuzik Law, or find our radio shows at the link at the bottom of our website at www.kuziklaw.com, K-U-Z-Y-K-L-A-W.com. Our next story is with Robert Ryan, and what's next for this California intersection blamed in a $27.5 million verdict? Robert, tell us about it. Well, you know, there's a kind of a famous intersection. It's in Redondo Beach, I believe. It's on PCH. And uh, in, I think it was in 2002, there was a crash involving a UCLA defensive lineman or a former defensive lineman for UCLA's football team. He was riding his motorcycle northbound on PCH, and a taxi driver made a left turn in front of him. And there was a crash, a pretty bad crash. Um, most crashes involving motorcycles do tend to be pretty pretty bad. Um, and ultimately, this poor guy on the motorcycle ended up losing the lower half of his left leg. And uh, he filed a lawsuit against the taxi driver, obviously, um, but also against Caltrans and against, uh, you know, the city, uh, saying that the, the, the intersection was inherently dangerous. And uh, this posed an interesting question because, you know, not a lot of people are aware that sometimes municipalities or governmental agencies can be responsible under certain circumstances for dangerous conditions of public highways. And these dangerous conditions can come about in a couple of ways. First of all, the dangerous condition can can come can come about because of the design of a particular intersection or roadway, and then sometimes the dangerous condition can come about because of negligence in the maintenance of the roadway. And the allegation here was that this was a defectively designed intersection because the left-turning vehicles were coming up a grade. They were coming up uphill. And so they were not able to visualize oncoming traffic until they were actually in the intersection when it was too late to do anything about it. Um, and that was the allegation made in this lawsuit that um, this intersection was pretty famous for these types of accidents where left-turning vehicles in front of oncoming traffic would result in these horrific uh, uh, crashes, and that in fact Caltrans and the city had actually uh, formulated some plans for what to do about it, um, and that came into evidence in this lawsuit, along with evidence that it would have been a very simple thing for uh, Caltrans and the city to install a left turn arrow controlling left turning traffic at the intersection, which according to the allegations of the lawsuit, which was accepted by the jury, would have prevented this crash. Um, so this is an interesting issue, and it's something that recurs all the time because many people aren't really aware of the standard by which the government can be held responsible for a car crash if some element of causation of the car crash is based on the condition or design of the roadway. Yeah, well, that's good to know. That is good to know. And we are running out of time, so we are going to wrap up the show for today, and we'll look forward to 
convening again next week for another excellent show where I know we have a really good Ask the Expert uh, segment. And again, you're listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio with Robert, Mark, and Reed. Remember to check us out at KuzikLaw.com. That's KuzikLaw.com. Each week, we analyze civil cases in the news, trends in the law, and all legal current events. Thanks for listening to Kuzik Law's Fighting for Justice Radio.